open a new month, July, here with uh, continuing in our walk through the book of James. It's been one that we've been working through since last September, to the best of my recollection. Uh, the original recipients, as you recall, were struggling with their understanding of a number of areas. Uh, between works and faith was one of them. Uh, the problems that existed with the tongue, and the use of it, or abuse, uh, having wisdom, uh, being a friend of God, or being a friend of the world. Uh, we saw where there are areas of difficulty and humility, patience and prayer. And then most recently, we talked about six uh, advantageous uh, admonitions that James gave. And it started out with being submissive to God. And then the last one was the matter of humility. And I think we summed it up, uh, concluded at our last time, of uh, the picture of life being temporary. Um, and those things which in this, within this temporary life really have effect and ramifications for all eternity. So today we begin once again with what we might look upon and say it would be a great blessing as we understand what God would have us to understand, properly understood. And it's the topic of money and wealth. <gasps> the gasp goes out of the room. He's going to talk about the prosperity gospel or tithing or how to get money from God. There was a pastor from the Philippines years ago that had written a book, How to Get Money from God, and he would go around and preach this. You know, He was a great man, but there were some things a little twisted. I've got to ask you, when was the last time you listened to a sermon on wealth or money? And you say, well, it's been a long time. Pastors generally hold it with kid gloves because they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to uh, walk through this uh, field of cacti and get poked. Yet did you know that the Bible has more to say about money and wealth and such than any other topic in the scriptures? There are some 2,300 verses in God's word that talk about money, wealth, and possessions. Jesus preached on it around 15% of the time. Of his 39 parables, 15 of them were all dealing with the same thing or had the topic of it. So let's open our Bibles, James chapter 5, if you hadn't already, and let's see what James has to say in the first six verses here. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and ye shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who hath reaped down the, your fields, which is of you, kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them that have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Let's pray. Father, as with any time we come to your word and recognize it as that which is to be handled with great care, not to read into it something that's not there, 
but to allow your spirit to use your servant to bring forth truth. And it might be applied to our hearts, not only for the sake of agreement, but for principles of life. That as we turn away slowly from the world in which we live and were born in, to uh, the spiritual life that you would have us to be. Uh, these truths that James has provided for us were valuable in and strengthening in the church uh, of his day and have continued to provide truth through the generations. And so even today we acknowledge it's here for us today. Give us ears to hear, may we understand that it is only by your grace that we can approach it. In Christ's name, amen. We've mentioned before how many times James has used in his letters what I refer to as a wide quill. Um, he gets to a certain place and he presses down real hard. He wants a bold font, you know. He wants to emphasize something. And you guessed it. You read here once and again, and he's at it. The words that he writes here are a little bit different from the rest of our chapters and we've seen so far. There's emotion in this. Uh, these six verses are full of passion. And you kind of ask the question, why? It's kind of a change of pace. Although there is a common theme that runs through, he does emphasize this, and he's really strong on this. He, he almost sounds like an Old Testament prophet. And he says, for you rich, you're going to get yours. You know, he, he speaks of judgment coming to the rich, like, again, someone out of the Old Testament context. I think it's necessary because of the change of pace here that we understand with clarity who he's writing to or to whom he's writing or uh, what's the topic or the purpose for the writing of these words. As you remember, throughout this letter, we've mentioned time and again that he refers to the, the recipients of this letter as brethren, uh, Jewish brethren, born-again believers, yet infant in their relationship with their Lord, but nonetheless they were redeemed. And I read this in these six verses, and it doesn't sound like it fits to the brethren. The words that he's saying wouldn't be attached to somebody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Even in an infant stage, it doesn't seem to fit in there. So who else could he be writing to? Well, he could be writing to unbelieving Jews, uh, those who were uh, living in business, uh, how about cutthroat business, <laughs> uh, those who were making their wealth off of the people amongst whom they lived, almost like, again, the Old Testament prophets of his time, speaking to the truths that were there. And to be honest with you, judgment would come from the time most scholars believe that James was written until the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was a lot of corruption. There were business tactics, and, and many of the business Jews that were there had no qualms about uh, ripping people off. And, and it was hard enough with the pressure the Romans placed on the Christian Jews, but now their own countrymen, uh, those to whom uh, they took advantage of, are receiving this same thing. So it was hard on them. Yet if he's writing to unbelieving Jews, why would they be reading this letter? That doesn't fit either. 
They're not going to go and pick up, a, oh, here's a, here's a letter from, from James, and he's, we're going to read all about the, the, you know, the Lord and so forth, and then come to this chapter and be blasted? No. So that doesn't fit. So it doesn't seem like he's, he's writing directly to the recipients of this letter, nor is he writing to those who would fit the category of it. So I think the only common way to understand it, the only logical answer, is that James is writing to the church to encourage and to strengthen believers who are under this very pressure, under this weight, the oppressed Christians who have suffered tremendously over these years. Again, compounded by the unbelieving Jews who had no shame in bringing financial pressures under their own countrymen at the time. So James writes to them, not only to encourage them to be patient. In other words, the trials you're going through, be patient with it. And you remember how we started out the book? James 1, 2. Count it all joy when what? When you fall into various diverse trials and temptations. He starts out with the most powerful picture of what's going on in the theme of their lives. And he follows it real poignantly here with saying, you are being pressured by the unbelieving Jews, businessmen, corrupt, and so forth. And there might be a tendency to just to give up. I'm a Christian, you know. They expected the Lord to return at any time. That was the early first century attitude that they had, and even as we believe that today. My brethren, count it all joy. These men will receive their reward. But I think more so, he writes to them, to keep them from envying this type of lifestyle. You know, things are hard. And if I only change my business practice, I only change my life, my attitude towards the way that these men are, and, and I could receive not only the financial blessings, but the status that these men are, have in my society, you see. And so he writes them, again, to encourage them, be patient in these things, but he's writing them also for those who may desire the wealth and the connected lifestyle with it. Keep away from it. Don't. Because what these six verses say, there is going to be judgment on you for if you fall into that way. So verse 1, he starts out and he says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Ye rich men. He pointedly says that, not referring to all rich men, but certain ones. Those who made their wealth out of unjust business practices. Those men who did it unjustly. There's no sin in merely being rich, as the woke movement would like you to believe today in our world. The sin that exists comes from the way that they became wealthy. And the way they became wealthy and the heart's attitudes towards that and everything that they did and then the way that their wealth was used. In the book, Growing More Like Jesus, Richard Strauss writes, If there is one sin that ought to arouse our righteous ire, it is greed that we see in ourselves and in others. Lust for money and material possessions is one of the most powerful motivating forces known to man. And grasping after more has become the order of the day. When we see people gambling away their incomes and reducing their families to poverty 
in desperate attempts to strike it rich. We have a right to be angry. And when we see people suing others for millions of dollars over trivial matters, it's obvious attempt to become rich. We have a right to be angry. When we see business people taking unfair advantage of others to make a fast dollar, we have a right to be angry. There are principles that we see all the time. No doubt we've had those feelings and thoughts ourselves at one time or another. But we need to come back to the principle that James has held all throughout this letter, and more specifically in chapter 4 and into now chapter 5. It's the idea, the premise of the continuation, the brevity of life, the sovereignty of God, and the submissiveness to him in all things, including wealth, money, and material possessions. That's what James pushes on them to understand. Listen to the psalmist. Psalm 39, 4, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. The only one who brings things into perspective as far as life and eternity, the brevity of life or the principles of eternity or one who's in sovereign, is God. So the psalmist says, Lord, bring me to an understanding of mine end, the direction of life, the measurement of my days. And then one from our responsive reading, I don't know if you're, you've probably memorized this at times, 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Same principle. Help me to understand just not the number. He's not talking about number, but he says in perspective, in, in relationship to eternity, God, give me a perspective of that, that I can apply wisdom to the number of days that I'm living. I only got two more years to live. There's a fellow at uh, Skip. Some of you have known Skip at Marcus Hook. And that last Lord's Day, Skip was there in church, and he stood up and gave a little testimony. And he says, uh, two years ago, he said, when I first was diagnosed with cancer, the doctor said I had one year to live. And he says, now I've gone through in, 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 in understanding that's not quite accurate. you know." And sometimes we evaluate things in such a way, and I've only got so long, but it's in the hands of God. Yet it is a principle of brevity. Here's the Apostle Paul's instruction to a young Timothy. And again, the idea of the application of godly wisdom in a relationship to this world's goods. How do we deal with it? He writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. And having food and raiment or clothing, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich, and that word will be is the idea of a desire or covet, uh, the demand to become determined to become rich. They that will be rich fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through many sorrows. But thou, Timothy, man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, 
godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, laid hold on the eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession among many witnesses. A right attitude, a hard attitude, the direction of the world and where it goes and how it's destroyed, even those who are of the faith, he refers to them. And all of a sudden, that attitude towards possessions has brought great destruction to them. We used the parable the last time we were together about a man who was prospered greatly in in many things, and he planned. Crops are doing well, so I'm going to go build. I'm going to build bigger. I'm going to build better. And the end result will be for me that I can be all of a sudden uh, of, of great joy to me myself. Eat, drink, and be merry. But the reality of the parable is echoed by Jesus in the final words there. He says, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast prepared? It's a principle of life. It's a characteristic that we all gain. He says, if I can do this and I can do this, but we saw it's the idea of leaving God out of all of my plans and all of my instructions in order that I can be satisfied, but the brevity of life all of a sudden ruins that. Instead of putting myself in a position of a fool, focusing upon temporary things and temporary life, I don't understand my biblical responsibility to be the kind of person who glorifies God, the giver of all good and perfect gifts. If he becomes, in my heart's understanding, the source of what I am and what I have, then it is up to me as a steward to give back to him in whatever fashion it is to honor him, my heavenly father. Job is a super example out of the Old Testament. Here is a man who had financial resources and family taken away in a very short time. And to be honest with you, as you read his book, the idea of what God was doing in his life still remained a question mark. Chapter after chapter, he's saying, but I don't understand. People were trying to bring, his, bring him clarity as to why they thought it was happening, but he couldn't, and he always held it up as such. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Lost everything. But his course was, let me go back to the one who is the source of these things. And he said, naked came I into, out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The perspective, the right perspective of that who I am and that which I have, of all of those things around me, all of a sudden Job says, no, I may not understand it, but I do know the source of it all in whom I am obligated to come to. One of the more powerful examples that I hope will solidify the point comes from the Gospel of Mark and Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. And you've heard this before. There come one running and kneel to him and ask him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto them, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. 
Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said to him, One thing lackest thou. Go thy way and sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and take up thy cross and follow me. Verse 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. His evaluation of life was based upon straddling the fence of being honorable in all things to God and yet satisfying himself by those things that he has obtained and feeling, these are mine. Even though they were sourced from God. Even though they were at his hand. Jesus goes on to say how hard it is for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. As hard as a what? As a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, someone always looked at that an accurate study. It seems to be the eye of a needle was a little door in the main gate of the, of the wall of a city. And it would have been impossible uh, for the camel to get through there. But whether it's the door or whether it's a needle in itself, it's an impossibility. So he says there's the pressure that's seen from the heart in an attitude towards wealth. It's personally hard because mankind is not willing to say that I'm a slave towards something. The principle of a slave takes away from me the ability to say that uh, I know what I'm doing, and I'm not doing that, I'm doing this. And yet we don't necessarily realize that. The man's of seeking the kingdom of God first, and his righteousness is hard, isn't it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First as a matter of priority, and first as a matter of every time of the day. Yet how often are we involved in that process? Not necessarily so. I think it's hard. Mankind has been bound to the temporal, making his earthly time his heaven. Of all of those things that I find of great joy, this is my heaven on earth because I have what I need to have. I have what I want to have. I have what has been given to me because I've worked hard. Oh, and God's blessed me, but I've done all of this, and this is my heaven. Not thinking at all that it is not the case. And we make our 60 or our 70 or our 80 or our 90 years our eternity. So James proclaims, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. He's saying, as a matter of fact, this is in concrete. Wealth has made man self-sufficient. His bank account, or whatever security that he has found in, in life, whatever that may be, is the base of his security. Because he can say, look what I've done. Maybe not in a boastful sense, but in a confident sense. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done without any tinge of understanding that all has been provided for graciously by God. And he didn't have to. He wasn't under any obligation to do such. 
So that's why he says, weep and howl. Imagine how painful that was. If indeed the case was uh, focused upon the Roman invasion in Jerusalem at 70 AD, it was a, it was a pitiful, pitiful, horrible uh, picture of description of the slaughter that took place. Verse 2. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. A little digging on that word corrupted is, could be better translated as putrefied. You can get the smell, you know. Not talking about gold or silver or precious stones, because they don't do that. That's not as riches. But the riches that were found for oftentimes for many of these people was their flocks and their herds. You know, the grains that were available stored away to be bought and sold. Uh, the, the sheep or the camels or whatever other uh, uh, beef or, or whatever else was done. You know, all of a sudden that becomes putrefied. It fails you. You've lost it all because you had found it to be your profit. Your clothes, moth-eaten. Uh, clothing was a, a public indicator of wealth. Oftentimes we think of that today, you know. I'm not gonna, we, we, dress, we dress up nicely for church, you know, but if somebody comes in here in a tuxedo and a ball gown and so forth, we think you know, it's a little bit presumptuous, you know, we want to show off who I am. I want to show off by the clothes that I'm wearing. And as you very well know, the longer we live, the life in this journey, it's full of decay and deterioration, isn't it? Oh, that hurt, you know. Get up in the morning, oh, that one hurts. You know, it's full of decay and deterioration, almost from the time we were born. He says, this is the situation that you found. Your, your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Everything, this isn't the 40 years in the wilderness. Going through wearing the same sandals and the wearing the same cloak and eating the delicious manna day after day, which nourished your bodies perfectly, that's gone. It has nothing to do with things like that. We're talking about a lifetime of blood, sweat, and tears to make it. And what's left? Dust. A marker on some building. This is so-and-so's building. Never knew him. Go to the cemetery, and there is name scratched on there in, in marble or granite or limestone or whatever. That's all that's left the weather-beaten marker of life. James brings the course of their attitude, their heart, into perspective of all those things. Verse 3, Your gold and your silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be witness against you, and shall eat your flesh, as it were, with fire. You were heaped treasured together for the last day. Cankered or rusted gold and silver. Can that happen? One man I read says in the early days, and in, in possibly during this period of time, gold was not as pure as it could be, so there could be some taints of other types of materials in there that could rust a little bit and so forth. But gold and silver by itself, it's not going to rust. It's not going to fall apart. It's not going to be what is we say we're worthless. But in value... God says it's worthless. What makes gold so precious other than what we've said it is? You know? 
you go on the, uh, some island and there's all the buried treasure that's there and you get there, but there's no food to eat. There's no people to live with. All of the piles of gold mean nothing. It means nothing. He says, all of these treasures for you, they might as well be all corrupted and corroded. Its value is worthless because I, God, say it's worthless. In, in your life, that's how it is. God establishes value. Jesus' own words on the Sermon on the Mount. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But then he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's the key to the relationship to material things, where my heart is. Where is my joy, my satisfaction? That's the truth. Remember Judas? Chose the temporary instead of Jesus, you know. 30 coins, worthless, and, and yet he realized that and went and hung himself and, you know, his life. He took the silver instead of the Savior. He picked the money instead of the Master. Here again are Paul's words to that Timothy, again, reminding him as a young pastor. Charge them. In other words, announce to them, bring to their heart's attention, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. The uncertainty of it, I put my whole life into this, my whole name, my whole reputation, all of those, those principles, don't do that, but in the living God, or put instead your trust in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. God has provided us richly. And, and, and he says, to that end, enjoy everything that God has given. Recognize that it's from him. No matter whether it be lean or full, God is the supply that lasts forever. Verse 4, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you, kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them have reaped are in are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath or the Lord of hosts. Here's a practice that was apparently common in the day. You hire somebody to perform A, B, and C. They take the day or whatever times they've been hired for and they perform A, B, and C. Then they come to you and they ask for the proper wage. And all throughout the Old and New Testament, the, the laborer is worthy of his hire. You pay the person for what he's accomplished, what he's done, because he's worthy of that. They couldn't even do that. The most common sense principle of life. He works, he gets paid for what he's done. And so what recourse did they have? Well, I'll take him to court. What does the poor man have in the court? Because the rich man controls the court. He says he has no recourse whatsoever. The presumption is that no one will hear, that no one will side with him in his distress. He has no voice in court. He has nothing to say. You might as well just quit and understand that nothing is there. All injustice. But, 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 but there is one who hears. Brethren, never forget that God is not some disinterested bystander in life. The presumption is for the rich that, well, I can overrule in these principles here. 
He sees and he knows and he understands every intricate detail of all of his lives, of all of his children. Sometimes we feel that we are so insignificant that God must pass over my life or pass over my situation. That of all of the injustices that are taking place in my life or in the life of my family or in the life of whatever, he, he, he's, he's involved in other things that are more important. Recognize that God is there to provide for his children. And what we do personally and privately in life in matters of good and faithful stewards, he sees and he recognizes that this is not an unknown to the Lord. The poor widow who threw in those two mites in the treasury didn't go by the Lord. He understood the smallness of it, but from the heart. And he says that was most valuable. The gospel track handed over to a friend. The closet prayer that you have day after day after day for the salvation of your parents or your children or your children's children has come to the throne of God without delay and will be addressed according to his good pleasure. He doesn't look upon it and say, well, you know, there are other events going on. You know, we've got a great famine over here in North Africa and we've got wars going on in Europe and so forth. In the by and by, I'll take care of you. He's not on vacation. He's not there to the place. He says, well, I'll get back to you when I'm in the office. Remember the children in the Exodus? They are stuck there in Egypt. And it says, of all of the abuse, the things that were taking place in their lives, their cries came up to the Lord of Sabaoth. And he heard them and he acted and he provided for them escape onto the promised land. Cain and Abel. I kind of think James had this in mind. Thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground, text says. It cries from the ground. Even in those situations, James says, don't worry. The Lord knows and the Lord hears and he will act. Then verses 5 and 6. It's a closeout section I'd like to refer to as the ending of the prosecuting attorney's uh, uh, charges that are laid before in very graphic summary. You have lived in pleasures on the earth and been wanton. Uh, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. What was that guy's name? Robin Leach, you know. And he'd take you into their house and their lifestyles and so forth. And in, in, the, in the terminology, and been wanton, they still don't have enough. They are living in luxury beyond their wildest dreams. And he says they still don't have enough. Still going on. He says, this is how it's been. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. A picture of self-indulgent luxury. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. These apathetic, wicked rich are like cattle grazing in the fields, thinking life is all real good, and the grass is so green, and they're just filling their bellies and not recognizing that they are being prepared for the slaughter. They are the ones to whom God answers. We stop here at our text, but I just wonder if your Bibles are open. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. However we view life and however we view the injustices that are created in our own life or in those around us or our nation or as Christians in general, 
James issues this principle, those things that are taking place that you're still suffering under, he says, be patient unto the coming of the Lord. I want to close today with some simple principles that James brings out to our attention in matters of stewardship and in the matters of wealth and, and prosperity. Number one, and it's a big one, and we pushed it heavily, recognize that wealth and all that it encompasses in that word is temporary. Nail it down. Understand that those things that which we have, that we rely upon, is here today and gone tomorrow. Those who lived through the Great Depression, you can read about it through the 20s and the 30s, and life as it was for all of the great and famous and the rich that were there, gone, disappeared. Number two, recognize that you, as an adopted child of the living God, that you are going to be called to witness how you use that wealth. What God gives us as stewards and principles of life, he says he just doesn't do it for just our sakes, but he says someday I will call you once again. If you remember the parable of the talents and the master distributes unto him five, three, and one, or five, two, and one. And he says he'll be gone on a journey, and when he comes back he's expecting an accounting of what you've done with it. And so the one who had five, he doubled his, and he gives him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things, make you ruler over many. And the one who has two doubles his to four, and he gives him the same reward. Here on earth, we'd like to think that the one who had five doubled to ten should get a greater reward because he got more. But it's not the principle of numbers. It's the principle of faithfulness to what it was. And then the one who had one goes ahead and he buries his. And the responsibility of doing nothing with what God has given us, having nothing to offer him as far as what we've done with what he's provided for, brought great condemnation. We are to use what we have to glorify God in the midst of all these things. Now, if you took that and applied that to every realm of life, I think you could pretty much understand what James is talking about in the entire book. The principle of everything that God has provided for us. I think you're on track. It's a matter of stewardship. And you're going to be held accountable for it by the way you handle that test. By the way that you handle temptation. By the way that you handle your study of the Bible. By the way you handle love. By the way you handle tapping into his wisdom. The control of our tongue learning to depend upon the Lord. Everything that he talked about, he says, we give an account for that. Everything that James held heavily upon these people comes to us in the same vein. And we can't say, well, you didn't tell me, or I didn't understand. No, it's a principle of stewardship that's there. Accountability. And then finally, principle three is to invest wisely because our time is short. And that's what James is saying. If the brevity of life is three score and ten years, and if beyond that it becomes a little more aches and pains and so forth, so it is. But it is, again, we talked about the, the line going all the way around and around and around. and uh, The one dot on the line represents our time here on earth. What I do with that period of time represents the reflection upon all of eternity. So we are to invest in it.
Painfully, Paul wrote, for Demas has forsaken me and loved this present world. Demas, three times he's mentioned in the New Testament and talks about him being a fellow servant or working with Paul. Sounded like things were pretty good. And then all of a sudden, Demas found that the pleasures of the world, the following after the world, was better for him. And he says he loves that present world more than anything else. Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. Colossians 3.2. That's a key, I think. Setting my heart's affection, where my heart is, my treasure is. That's where it all is. Don't be lost in that which is laid before us. Uh, We come to our our Independence Day weekend. Uh, God has provided us with a freedom and independence from the things of the world. And to be able to entrust our care and our well-being into his hands. And so he's blessed with our country. Let's pray. Father, a lot of words thrown around, a lot of principles that were there. Some are more clearly understood or received than others. Nonetheless, they're truths that James was intending to, by your spirit, teach uh, to his recipients. And so, We pray that your spirit would take these seeds and bring to our heart's attention day after day. We could be taken out of this world and taken home to glory at any time. Eternity is that which we face. And we trust, Lord, that each one here understands that relationship is a matter of grace. That what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in providing salvation through his shed blood is an offering to all. And once achieved, we understand the relationship to everything else. Our wealth, our relationships to each other as families, as uh, as stewards of of the abundance of that which is given. Uh, Forgive us where we failed. Cause us, Father, to to reflect upon life uh, on a regular basis as we walk with you. uh, The rising of the sun to setting down of the same. We thank you once again for your presence in Christ's name. Amen.